I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. Hey, how are you doing, podcats? Adam Buxton here, reporting to you from a field in the east of England in the first week of December 2020. And it's a beautiful evening. Myself and Rosie are out for a walk. It's cold. Over in the trees just next to me, you can probably hear the rooks. They are not social distancing. And they're just hanging out in a very irresponsible way. What is the collective noun for rooks? I know that it's a murder of crows. A yob of rooks? What do you think, Rose? A wanker of rooks, maybe. Rosie's looking at me. Google it. Google it. Google it. Google it. All right, calm down. Collective nouns for rooks include... Building, Parliament, Clamour, and Storytelling. What? Is that just made up? Apparently not. A Storytelling of Rooks. What the F? A Parliament of Rooks. Yes, I think I've heard that before. Because it is like Parliament. Anyway, look. Let me tell you a bit about podcast number 143 which features a rambling conversation with American actor, writer, singer, songwriter and producer Rachel Bloom. Bloom facts. Rachel, currently aged 33, is the co-creator, co-writer, co-executive producer and star of the American sitcom Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which ran on the CW network in the United States for four seasons. That's what they call them there, seasons, from 2015 to 2019. And the show can now be seen on Netflix, if you're not already familiar with it. In Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, Rachel plays Rebecca Bunch, a successful young lawyer who impulsively gives up her life in New York and moves to suburban California in the hopes of winning back a boy she fell in love with as a teenager at summer camp. The story of Rebecca starting a new life in California and gradually coming to terms with the mental health challenges and personality quirks that informed her relocation is told with the help of occasional musical numbers in a wide variety of styles, all filmed with top-notch music video production values and choreography. It was these kinds of highly accomplished, clever and funny music videos, often playing with ideas of femininity, female sexuality and gender roles, that first brought Rachel to the attention of TV producers when she started posting them on YouTube at the beginning of the 2010s. There's a few links in the description of the podcast to some of those, including... There's going to be some bad language here, so watch out. Ready? Fuck me, Ray Bradbury... You Can Touch My Boobies, and Pictures of Your Dick. Rachel has written a book called I Want to Be Where the Normal People Are. 
It's a collection of personal essays, poems, and even amusement park maps, in the physical version at least, on the subjects of insecurity, fame, anxiety, and much more. There's even a whole chapter about Rachel's relationship with musicals, brilliantly performed by Rachel in the form of a 15-minute musical, with music by friend and collaborator Jerome Kurtenbach. You can listen to it on Rachel's website. I spoke with Rachel via the Zoom a few weeks ago in the middle of November of this year, 2020, and we talked, amongst other things, about what it was like growing up a theatre nerd in California why the current series of The Crown triggered me, whether Americans are better at doing British accents than British people are at doing American accents. That is a particularly humiliating section of the conversation for Buckles. And uh, actually, speaking of... There's a couple of slightly humiliating bits in this. There's a bit where I got confused about whether Northern Ireland was part of the UK. It's one of those things that is just not wired right in my head. I have quite a few of them. I still struggle with left and right. The thing that short circuits with me in Northern Ireland and the UK is that Britain is just England, Scotland and Wales currently. <laughs> but then the UK is with Northern Ireland and, I, and they get swapped around in my head. So I'm sorry. Anyway, what else did we talk about? Oh, yeah, well... We talked about some of the challenges this year has thrown up, which for Rachel included the birth of her first child and the death of a friend and musical collaborator, Adam Schlesinger of Fountains of Wayne, who collaborated with Rachel on songs throughout the uh, production of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Anyway, we talked about that. Back at the end for another small waffle slice. But right now, here we go. by the way. Oh, thanks very much. This is my voice booth in the barn next to the house where I live in the Norfolk countryside. I'm in East Anglia. How familiar are you with the UK, Rachel? Not super familiar, unfortunately. You've toured here, though, haven't you? I have. I was watching from... Uh, watching. I say watching because I've just been watching The Crown. I only went to London, so I know London kind of well. Yeah. But the rest of it, I wish I knew better. Right, okay. I mean, London... Uh, I was going to say something offensively London-centric there, and then I thought better of it. London's the only thing worth noting in the UK? Yeah, I was going to say that. I mean, I don't believe it. I just thought it would be a funny thing to say. But then I thought, nah, it's not that funny. I know Londoners believe that. Where did you grow up, Rachel? I grew up in Manhattan Beach, California, which is oh. like a nice beach town. Was it always nice, Manhattan Beach? Yeah, it was middle class, upper middle class. And I kind of lived there in the 
midpoint of its development where you still had that vibe, but there were more and more rich people moving there because it's the beach. And now it is truly for like multimillionaires and billionaires. Oh, really? Okay. Oh, yeah. There's not like a sort of groovy artsy part. Well, the weird thing is because it's a lot of, I think now Manhattan Beach kids whose parents are in the industry. Yeah. I think they, it's like growing up in Santa Monica or the Pacific Palisades, if you know like those areas that there's an artsiness or an artsiness adjacent, but no working artists are moving there because it's affordable. Okay. And was it fun? Did you enjoy it there? I mean, you write in your book about the frustrations you had at the hands of kind of slightly airheaded surfery types who weren't especially keen on engaging with anything complicated. (laughs) (laughs) That's how I felt. Yeah, I felt like that was the vibe, especially if you were popular. Mm -hmm. That was like what everyone kind of aspired to is the like cool beach vibe. It's the type of thing where you spend a thousand dollars on like a poncho. (laughs) It's that like kind of unself-aware laid backness that I couldn't identify with. Who did you hang out with then? Were you going to beach parties or what was your scene? No, um, I didn't go to the beach a ton, even though I grew up a mile away from it. And my mom was like, you're not a strong swimmer. You'll drown in the ocean, Hmm. which I never did to my credit. Right. Okay. Well done. It didn't drown in the ocean. I hung out with fellow, I think, oddballs. In high school, it got a little better, but definitely elementary and middle school. I wasn't hanging out with the type of people who were going to the beach a ton. I was hanging out with very inlandy people. Whenever I think of beaches and Americans, I just think of Point Break. And I think of Patrick Swayze sitting around with all those surf dudes and uh, Keanu thinking about robbing banks. So like, that's not inaccurate, especially (laughs) the bank robbing part. It's not inaccurate. I would also say that's like aspirational. That's what everyone's kind of going for. I feel like there is an element of living in a beach town where you know the type of lifestyle you should be having living in a beach town. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of acting like that. But also it is, it's the environment. It's how can you be stressed out or too introspective or have an existential crisis when like it's beautiful and you see the ocean and there is something very mentally healthy about that. Mm. But I would have fit in more if I'd grown up on the East Coast of the U.S. where it's darker, it's winterier. There's a reason that a lot of our great writers come from the East Coast. It's there's also like a value of intellect over there, like intellect just for intellect's sake that I felt was lacking more where I grew up. There were still very smart people. And I'm making gross generalizations. I think you're making sexy generalizations. (laughs) Yeah. They're not gross at all. (laughs) Um, You mentioned that you were watching The Crown. Have you been watching The Crown today? I know because we already finished it uh, two days ago. You finished it. This is the latest series we're talking about. Is it season four? Yes. Okay. How did you get on? It was great. It was depressing. It (laughs) made me realize that the idea of an inherited leader Mm -hmm. is so stupid. And it's been the cause of so many terrible things throughout human history. The idea that you, God has designated this person to lead a people who has no expertise, who might be crazy. It's not even like an election within a family. Because in every family, there's like the good person and there's the bad person. Even if there was like an election within a family, I could be more okay with that. But the fact that it's like one person 
and you're reliant, like, let's hope that person's not batshit insane. That's nuts. <laughs> Who do you think the maddest one is out of all the p- characters in The Crown? Oh, God. I mean, I should say at this point that there's quite a lot of articles at the moment in the UK about the extent to which that series is or is not in any way historically accurate. So I was looking that up myself because I was wondering, because I don't know a ton about the UK royalty. I mean, I remember where I was when Princess Diana died. Mm -hmm. And that's why I remember that she was so famous, the fact that it affected my life. But I don't know a ton. So what's like one of the main things they think is inaccurate? Well, I mean, they play around with the chronology quite a lot. They talk about the fact that Thatcher actually was quite a monarchist. She and the Queen got on quite well. Thatcher liked the Hmm. Queen and was eager to please her, which kind of makes sense, given the kind of person that Thatcher was and what she believed in. So that idea that the Queen was just always... I'm only two episodes in. So I've just seen the one where they go to Balmoral. Oh, that's a great episode. (laughs) That was good. It was funny, the scene where they're playing parlor games with the burnt cork, Ibble Dibble. (laughs) It made me cringe because I went to a few of those kinds of houses. I didn't go to Balmoral, but I did go to one or two weekends at houses a bit like that with a lot of posh people playing very similar parlor games, even maybe Ibble Dibble, I think. And I did suddenly find myself sympathizing with Margaret Thatcher (laughs) and thinking, yeah, I remember that exact feeling of just thinking, fuck this. This is not a good game. (laughs) They're acting like it's the best. And if you can't play Ibble Dibble, then you're a fucking idiot. And I just thought, I don't want to play Ibble Dibble. This is bad. (laughs) So it was it's full of good little observations about the rituals of humiliation that can take place unconsciously a lot of the time in those environments but I don't know I suspect that that kind of thing did not happen and that Margaret Thatcher was not routinely humiliated (laughs) by the royal family in that way but I don't know I know very little about the royal family so wait let's go back to Ibble Dibble for just a second because I was surprised I was like oh they all have like silly burn marks on their faces yeah they're a little more laid back than I thought I guess but I guess parlor games, they're silly nonsense. It reminded me of an improv game. Because correct me if I'm wrong, it has something to do with... I've never heard of this game. You go one ibble dibble dibble... You have to call out number seven and they have to do the number of circles on their face that you call out. Something like... It's a sort of super complicated system of you're assigned a number, you have to call to someone else, you have to remember their number and you have to incorporate with the silly ibble dibble phrase the number of blemishes they have on their face and the number of marks you have on your I mean it's it's one of those things that presumably could be great if you really like everyone that you're playing with but if you feel uncomfortable anyway and you're a bit of an outsider and everyone is much better at it than you thinks it's hilarious knows exactly how it works thinks you're a bit of a dick because you're not properly joining in then it becomes a total nightmare you know what I mean I mean you are describing A college improv group. Yeah. (laughs) It's the same rules. There's this improv game called Big Booty, Uh where you go, Big Booty, Big Booty, Big Booty. Oh, yeah. Big Booty number three. Number three, Big Booty. That's literally Ibble Dibble. It's insular. If you don't get the rules, you're laughed at. So I think what you're saying is a college improv group is very similar to being the Queen of England. (laughs) I suspect that's probably true. Yeah. I I mean, I would find an improv group absolutely mortifying. I was never 
able to feel comfortable in those environments. And you write very well in your book about being in your first big writer's room after you started getting some success and the experience of feeling out of place. I mean, it didn't help that you were the only woman in this writer's room. And I could very much relate to that feeling of just squirming. I can't relate to that feeling of being a woman in an all-male environment. I was a man with other men trying to think of funny ideas. It didn't happen very often because I learned very quickly that that was not an environment where I was going to thrive. But sitting around and trying to think of the funny. <laughs> as soon as I apologize if this is an expression that you favor. No, but, I've never used that. <laughs> okay. But when people started sitting around and talking about the funny, now where's the, where's the funny here? Okay. Uh, guys, come on. Let's, uh, let's try and locate the funny. And I just thought, I don't want to fucking locate the funny. I want to club it to death with <laughs> with something. Well, that's a lot of pressure to call it the funny. Yeah. I'm grateful that I haven't really used that phrase because to say find the funny, oh, God, uh, that's just like, be funny right now. Yeah. I have a question. When you were going back and doing that impression of the person saying find the funny, mm. were you doing a different dialect? I'm so interested in um, dialects, oh, especially yeah. UK, because I, I took an accents and dialects class. Were you going into like a different dialect or was that just you doing a different voice i couldn't tell no that was me just doing uh, in my mind that's my shed man voice it's like a bloke and when he goes to his shed <laughs> he suddenly turns into a bit of a boring bastard oh i see yeah and he starts sort of pontificating in a very learned and uh, assured way about all manner of things. So it's your equivalent of like, yeah, um, hi, my name's Devin, and I have a question um, for this Q&A. Like, it's like that. Sort of thing. It's like your equivalent. Okay, got it. I love UK dialects. Yeah, I was going to ask you, because you do a few accents <laughs> in the book, and I really <laughs> like it when Americans do English accents. Well, I also wasn't trying. I mean, look, I could have tried harder on those. <laughs> I'm not setting you up to humiliate you at all i genuinely like it will you just speak to me in an english accent for a while and you can request the accent that i speak to you in oh sure um okay well <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's a bit better if i do like a cockney accent oh. because i was in oliver mm -hmm. where i played the part of nancy yeah and so i took a little well uh, dialects class when i i did that role yeah I don't know if this comes up much uh, in the book. <laughs> can you do uh, Australian? Oh, mate, yes. I can definitely, I can do the absolute shit out of Australian. No problem, mate. I don't know what region. No, I'm joking. Um, Yeah, any Australian. <laughs> that sounded really good, mate. I learned a thing. If you want to hook into the Australian dialect, yeah. Vela Lavelle, who was on Crazy X, taught me this. You say, rise up lights. Uh -huh. And if you say that fast, it's razor blades. Ah, okay. I like Rise those. up lights. Rise up lights. Rise up lights. Rise up lights. Yeah, that's yeah. good. It's pretty great. <laughs> um, we had a game. We had our own Ibble Dibble on Crazy X where we'd all try to do the an Irish dialect. I don't know who started this, but someone learned that you could really hook into the Irish dialect with the phrase, you best not be courting my sister. <laughs> <laughs> so we went around and had a you best not be court my sister context and I put a lot of it on Instagram actually and most of it was just humiliating mm -hmm. absolutely humiliating but some of the more like classically trained theater people you best not be courting my sister that's, that's quite good 
Oh, thank you. That sounds good. No offense, but it sounds a little bit better than your Cockney. No offense taken. <laughs> haven't worked on the Cockney in. I haven't worked on the Cockney in a while. And when I was recording the audiobook, I was like, "Oh, I should have prepped my English accent for some of this because this is bad." No, it's. But I was like, "Well, too late." It's good, and you throw yourself into it, which is the main thing. Look, if I did a role, I would obviously get better. I'm trying to think of who the best British accent from an American actor is that I can think of. I mean, for a long time, Gwyneth Paltrow cornered the market, but hers was always quite nasally and Queen-like. Actually, speaking、mm-hmm. of the Queen. You know, and it was just—it was a little bit kind of. It was just a bit sort of royal, and yeah, it was just sort of nasally and full of huffing and puffing, and、uh, I don't know. It was—it was good. It was very good, but it was、uh, there was something a bit creepy about it. I'm not sure. I, I like it when accents are not even trying to be very accurate, and they're just fucking stupid. Oh yeah, well that's like—I mean. This isn't a UK accent, but when Kevin Spacey was on House of Cards and he was just basically Foghorn Leghorn half the time, yeah, <laughs> with his Southern accent, it was, it was delightful. And then in dramatic speeches, he would just、um, drop it. <laughs> he would just drop the accent. I've seen a few shows on the West End where there's like a straight American dialect. It's fine, but anything regional,、mm. it starts to get embarrassing. Yeah. It's a shame because it really pulls the rug from under the audience. I think when they hear a dodgy accent, there's not much you can do to really. Maybe it's just me. I'm a bit unimaginative in that way. No, you can't really get over it. But I can't really think. I'm just so impressed by English actors. I mean, also think about Matthew Reese, who just only seems to play mostly American roles, and he has this like beautiful Welsh. Dialect in real life, like he's so talented.、Mm. He's in the Americans, isn't he? The Americans. He was in that movie,、um, the Tom Hanks, Mr. Rogers movie. Oh, that's right. And he's just so convincingly American. I mean, was in a show called The Americans,、yeah. and in real life, in the Welsh accent, I can't even do an impression of the Welsh accent. It's oh,、so、the Welsh accent. It's very easy. You just talk like that, and then you're Welsh. Oh, the Welsh accent. It's ve- no, no, not at all. Wait, what the heck? Can I hear your American?、Uh, okay, now I'm on the spot. Well, okay. So if I was going on tape、yeah. and I was genuinely trying to be American, I can give you a sentence or a, a paragraph or something. Okay. Well, look, I'll read from Animal Farm by George Orwell. Oh, the pigs were in ecstasies. <sighs> That's bad already. The pigs were in ecstasies over Napoleon's. Oh, this is bad. No, it's, it's、so、not. It's so weird how. No, I. Being nervous. I thought that was fine. All right, hang on. Let me try again. Chapter one. Mister Jones of Manor Farm had locked the hen houses for the night, but was too drunk to remember to shut the pop holes. With the ring of light from his lantern dancing from side to side, he lurched across the yard, kicked off his boots at the back door. Ah,、oh, it's no good because I thought that was good. The thing that always happens with a lot of shit. British accents is you overemphasize the R's, like it all starts getting kind of you know R-y, and it's bad. Look, it's not wrong. I thought that was pretty good. Wait, let me try to read. Okay, wait. Maybe I'll be better at a British accent if I read. Okay, I'll try to do a neutral British accent because your your American was very good. I thought that's nice of you, Rachel. Okay, this is called Finding Los Angeles by Foot. <clears throat> The legacies of architect Richard Neutra and Silver Lake are intertwined. 
The lake and the downsloping lots provided a perfect canvas for the mass... No. That was good. I think in the same way that I'm tripping up on the R's, you're tripping up on the O's. And I think Gwyneth Paltrow used to do the same thing of giving it too much oh, oh. Home. So there's home and then there's home. It's too, it goes too home. posh. I think you overemphasize the O if you're a posh character. Lots, lots home. and lots. Lots, lots. Because that's different. You overemphasize lots. the differences because we say lots. Lots, lots and lots. There you go. That's pretty good. Thanks. Yeah. Now let's practice the short O. And again, I'll give you words and sentences. I'll say them standard American first, followed up with the British dialect. Now some sentences. The loft smelled like strong coffee. The loft smelled like strong coffee. Ron opted to ignore Dot. Ron opted to ignore Dot. Lost coffee is not to be fought over. Lost coffee is not to be fought over. The dog was lost in the fog. The dog was lost in the fog. Rachel, I've really enjoyed reading your book over the last few days. Thank you. I'm coming to you as a relative newcomer. I want to be transparent about the fact that I've not watched the whole of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. That's okay. Most people in the world have not. I've only watched a few episodes, but I had seen a few of your YouTube videos before. I was in awe of those as someone who at a certain point was posting a few silly videos on YouTube myself and always wanted to do kind of musical parodies and musical bits and pieces. I've done a few songs, but they're different in that you've always embraced that musical theatre vibe. Yeah. Even when you're doing kind of Britney parodies or whatever, there's a theatricality about it that is very accomplished. And obviously you've got an extremely good voice, so I never had that. I was doing much more sort of deliberately rubbish things. But how did you get started with the YouTube stuff? Tell me how that all blew up. I started out doing sketch comedy. And then at a certain point, I wanted to combine what I'd learned from sketch comedy and what I'd learned about musical theater. And it was just as YouTube had, had really blown up. And I originally started doing it just because I wanted it to be kind of a comedy calling card. More to impress my fellow comedians and get more clout in like the New York comedy community to be able to be like, I have something online and I do live stuff, you know? So I didn't anticipate my first video going viral the way it did. And then I kept doing them because it's what I like to do and it's what I felt I was good at and a thing that I felt I was doing that was different than what other people were doing. Which was the first video that you posted? It was the Fuck Me Ray Bradbury one. Yeah. So that was 10 years ago, a whole decade ago. Yeah. It's amazingly well produced. And how did the uh, song come about? Fuck Me Ray Bradbury is about the writer, the sci-fi legend, who you were a <laughs> fan of. And what was it about Ray Bradbury that excited you to such a degree? Well, it was very personal. I had just gone through a breakup with a guy who was quite stoic and kind of clinical, very smart but saw the entire world as like a math problem, not great emotional EQ. Mm -hmm. And I was at home for like a summer break and I was rereading The Martian Chronicles, which still is my favorite book. And I was like, oh, I love the way that Ray Bradbury takes these smart premises that are about the future, they're sci-fi, but he uses those premises to explore emotion. 
and humanity. Even when it's about an alien, there's humanity in the aliens. And I thought, oh, God, I this is the guy I need. I need Ray Bradbury. Yeah. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, that's kind of funny. What if there was like a sexy song about Ray Bradbury? And then I just kind of wrote a little bit and then I put it in the back of my head being like, oh, it's just a stupid, silly idea. And then I was like, oh, but if it was like a blown out music video and like really done, that might be really cool. And the visual reference is Baby One More Time by Britney Spears. It is. And I have to say that was the idea of my boyfriend at the time, now my husband, and Jack Dolgen, the producer of the song, who's uh, and my writing partner, who's still my writing partner. I think originally it was going to be more like indie, down the street looking nerdy. And they were like, what if it was just something a little more that had a music video reference to it? And they were a thousand percent right. Yeah. But it also, you write in the book about how actually it came out quite sexy. You look good in it and it is, you're like choreographed very well. And it's almost too good, as you can see from some of the comments beneath (laughs) from, I'm presuming, I'm generalizing that it's young men admiring you and the way you look but you talk about the fact that in the book you were mindful of that and took certain precautions yes with that video and then ever since that video because i do a lot of pastiches of music videos of pop videos and pop videos especially when they're with women are very gratuitously sexy and i'm making a comment on that i want to make sure that in every video there's a what i call a boner killer moment Mm -hmm. That if you were trying to unironically jerk off to this video, you'd lose your boner because that's not why I'm being sexy. I'm not being sexy for you to unironically get horny from the video. Mm. I'm being sexy to like make a point. <laughs> what was the boner killer moment in Fuck Me Ray Bradbury? You know, I feel like when I lick his signature, that's pretty like, like <laughs> a lot. But not if you, I mean, if you really liked ray bradbury and you then it would just be extra sexy yeah there isn't really i hadn't perfected the boner killer moment in fuck me ray bradbury oh when i'm in the retainer or i'm playing like a 12 year old girl and i'm in a retainer and then you see me reach down and kind of like comically masturbate but in a really like intense like my smile is really like intense i feel like that's pretty i would consider it pretty boner killer although that just sounds like i'm describing a porno so yeah a retainer is braces. We call them braces over here in the UK. We also call them braces. Oh, do you? Yeah, so we have braces on our teeth. That's what's glued. And then a retainer is just the wire oh. that can either be glued or come out. Right, okay. I think we just call everything that goes in your mouth braces. That's fair. I'm not sure. I can't, I can't remember anyone using the expression retainer, although it's gradually merging. I have a 12-year-old daughter, and she uses mainly Americanisms. And I'm reaching the point gradually where I'm finally easing off and I'm not being quite such a dick anymore because I did go through quite a long time of just wanting to hold on to a little bit of verbiage that sounded quintessentially British. Like what? What irked you? Well, it's not... It's difficult, this, because this kind of thing annoys people and they do just go, well, look, none of that is important. It's just a way of kind of putting people down or humiliating people just because of the way they speak as long as you're understood that's the main thing yes of course i agree with all that but i also have i like the differences between the way people express themselves and i like sort of quirks of different nationalities or regions i agree so i think it's nice to hold on to some of those if possible 
Anyway, so when my daughter says, oh, he got really mad instead of he got really angry, I do pick her up on that. I didn't realize that one of those was American and the other was British. I would say, I associate saying... Oh, because mad, because you're mad is like you're crazy. Yeah. I mean, crazy and mad both get used to describe someone who is unbalanced as a piece of slang in the UK. But I would say that it's mainly Americans that say mad when they mean angry. So is she getting that from like TikTok, from watching TV and stuff? Exactly. She's on her iPad a great deal. And it's weird, like they barely watch TV at all, I think, any of my children. Everything is from the internet, which is totally international. Yeah. And when I say international, it's mainly American, really, as far as the stuff they're interested in goes. Absolutely. Okay, what English phrases would you like me, as someone who makes television? Yeah. What can I start to incept? <laughs> I've been watching, I'm watching the first season of Drag Race UK right now. Okay. And I feel like slag is something we could use more. You slag. You dirty slag. Now, that's got to be used right. And you've got to be careful with it, obviously. Right. Because I might be wrong about this, but this is my impression, is that it's one of those words that has been traditionally used about women <laughs> who might be considered of loose morals. That's most of the, the slang I'm learning from Drag Race UK is like, I'm a right troll up. Because that, that's them introducing all of their personas. Yeah. Like, I'm a right trollop, all you need to give me is a pound and I'll suck you off. I, that's a really, really, that's a very bad one. That's my worst Are one. Are they saying trollop? That that's bad. They said trollop. That's old fashioned. That's sort of appropriated from Dickensian slang, I would say. Well, one of them's like, I'm a right trollop. Yeah. It's delightful. Trollop is okay, nice. So, what's a good, so trollop is fun. You trollop. You trollop. Or, I mean, slag... I don't need I don't need just slang for calling women slag. No, sure, but I was going to say that slag gets used in the gangster world, East End gangsters. You slag. About other male gangsters, you know, you dirty slag, you slag, I think. I'm trying to remember because, obviously, that was my background. I grew up as a East End gangster and yeah, I was raised as a gangster. Like but I haven't talked that way for such a long time. Let's see, what's a good phrase? I mean, do Americans ever say twat? No, but that's a good one. It is quite a good word. I feel like we pronounce it twat, but I like twat. You twat. Yeah, you see, when Americans say twat, I do think like, okay, well, you're just talking about the female anatomy. Yeah. Whereas you can call someone a twat in the UK and it just means they're a bit of an idiot. Right. Twat, that's a good one. But it regionally, it varies in strength. So the further south you go... Again, I might be wrong. This is how it appears to me. Yeah. The further south you go, the milder it is to call someone a twat. But the further north you go, the harsher it is and the more it becomes like the C word. So I was on the radio back in the early 2000s and we used to say twat quite a lot. And I used to just think, oh, it's not bad. It's just like calling someone a dick or a wally or I don't know. But then we got a memo and said, no, 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 no. That's very harsh for people listening in the north. That's like calling someone a C-word. Like in the north of the UK or like Northern Ireland? Uh, in the north of the UK, I think. Which is the UK. Northern Ireland is the UK. Northern Ireland is separate from the UK. Wait, wasn't that the whole thing? Wasn't that why everyone's fighting? Because Northern Ireland was like, no, we want to be part of the UK because we're Protestant? Um, it always used to part confuse me as a youngster. Wasn't that what the troubles were? What's the troubles? Oh, man, let's not get into the troubles. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Again, I just watched The Crown, so I'm pretty much an expert. Yeah, I'm going to cut this out because it makes me look offensively thick. <laughs> Northern Ireland is, yeah, it's a country province. I'm looking at Google now. <laughs> it's part of the United Kingdom. Wait, I was right. You were right. Yeah, I'm an expert on the trouble. <laughs> I watched an episode of The Crown, and now I'm an expert. Unacceptable, incompetent, and amateurish. Buckles, why are you still in your post? Poo pants. I say to you, poo pants, poo pants. I say again, poo pants. Buckles tried to clarify that the language was a requirement, though he didn't sound sure. Poo pants. It's good to be poo pants. Poo pants. I don't know, maybe not. Let's return to the wonderful world of YouTube. Do you spend much time on YouTube these days? No, I should be watching. I honestly feel like I'm more out of touch than not because I don't keep Instagram or Twitter on my phone. Yeah. So I am not as updated on things as my husband is. I usually find out things like a day later than they happened. Were you ever a person that read the comments? Did you read the comments for your own videos? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I used to read a lot of comments. I still do. I try not to. I have a keychain that says don't read the comments. I really like the phrase, what other people say about you is none of your business. Uh huh. I think that's wonderful. And especially now having a book out, you want to look at reviews. You want to look at what people are saying. I've perused uh, Goodreads, but I try to have a little bit of self-control because the book's out. What am I going to do? Exactly. And in the book... There is an essay which is a sort of, it's about reading a tweet from someone who says, you have no talent. Yes. And then you go into a fantasy about trying to change their mind and the minds of everyone in the world who doesn't like you. <laughs> yeah, I'm very proud of this essay in the book. It's called The Quest to Make Everyone in the World Like Me. Yeah. It's an emotional, because everything else in the book is either like, there's a true essay and then there's a comedic piece. This is the one thing that kind of bridges that gap and it's at the very end because it starts out emotionally true. There was a tweet that said you had no talent. And then everything else is a fantasy of, okay, if I really wanted to rectify the situation... If I really wanted to make everyone in the world like me, what would I have to do? And it was very fun to write. And then in the book, you talk about the fact that really it was quite a whirlwind process from becoming a YouTube star, having one of your videos go viral and then putting out a few videos that all did very well. And then you put out an album, right, in 2013. Yeah, and YouTube star is a very gracious term. Because when you look at actual YouTube stars... Actual YouTube stars are people who are getting millions and millions of millions of views. Right, they're churning and they're, it out. And, and they're churning them out. I had a, an audience and a devoted audience, but like everything I tend to do, I am a, so far at least, a cult. I have cult followings. But I'm not like these big, big, big YouTube stars, you know, that make a significant amount of money, especially from doing the YouTube thing. But yeah, I self-released an album and I was just continuing doing the YouTube thing. And then Crazy Ex-Girlfriend kind of not came out of nowhere because I was developing it with Aline Brosh McKenna. But it was this whirlwind process where we, she came out of nowhere. We created a show together. We pitched it. Then I thought it was going to go to series. And then it didn't go to series. And it was just very, very these um, high highs and low lows in the creation of the show. Yeah. And she... Aline Brosh McKenna had seen one of your videos or a few of your videos on YouTube. 
She was a screenwriter already quite well established in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. What was it about those videos that she responded to then? Why did she think you were the person to um, create a sitcom with? Well, she was procrastinating online one day. And I had done a thing called Historically Accurate Disney Princess Song. Uh huh. And she'd come across it and was like, oh, this is really well written. And, oh, it's really well sung, and then realized it was the same person. And then she just looked up all my videos and devoured all of them. And Aline just has a really good quality where if she becomes a fan of someone's work, she's like, I want to work with you. And so she reached out to me and was like, let's think of, like, she specifically said, like, a musical television show to work on together. And when we started brainstorming, she suddenly went, you know, I've always had an idea for a movie called Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. And I had this music video called Pictures of Your Dick which is this kind of Adele parody about a woman who posts pictures of her ex's dick all around town. And uh, Aline liked that my songs were funny, but also like very emotional and emotionally vulnerable. And that there was always a moment of true introspectiveness and darkness to them. And so the idea of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend as a movie for this show that we are creating was just like perfect. At that point... What were the other TV shows that had done well that were somewhat similar? I mean, the only one I can think of is, what was that weird Hill Street Blues spinoff that was a musical? Do you remember that one? Oh, well, there's Cop Rock, which I've actually never seen, which was a huge flop. At the time, I think we said it was Ally McBeal meets Flight of the Concords. Okay, there you go. Flight of the Concords is a better comparison in that they had original it was a story going into original songs yeah okay and the ali mcbeal element in that it's a sort of idiosyncratic female lead lawyer too lawyer there you go yeah i suppose one of the reasons that there aren't more musical tv shows is that it is prohibitively difficult to do that to generate enough music Like the Concords would generally just do one or maybe two, but generally one song, I think, per episode, wouldn't they? I'm not sure. No, I think it was two, but they only had two seasons. Right, okay. And some of your shows have three songs in, don't they? Some of them have four. Four, right. And the standard is very high. Like, immediately, they're really good. And the big show-stopping production number in the first episode when you move to Los Angeles... And suddenly you're on a cherry picker with a giant pretzel and it looks like a Spike Jones video. It looks like the Spike Jones video for Bjork for It's Oh So Quiet. Actually, the choreographer of that song choreographed Oh So Quiet. Oh, really? There you go. Mm-hmm. But it looks like a million dollars. Was it, though? Was it? Did you have a big budget for those shows? Yeah. So the pilot, because we were with Showtime, that was a $4.5 million pilot. Right, okay. And then when we went to the CW, each episode was about like $2.2 million, which is still a chunk of change. Big numbers. I love big numbers. big, big numbers. In every conceivable sense. But I think musicals are hard also to justify because when they're they're on stage, you don't need an excuse of why it's a musical. It's going to be a musical, I know. But if it's on TV or in film now, because musicals are not part of our general entertainment, or at least not as much, you need an excuse especially on television. You need a reason that it's a musical. And it's hard to find those reasons to make a whole serialized show. And what were your worries about doing that? Or did you have any at all? Maybe you didn't. I think generating material, and that's why when we got ordered to series, we brought on Adam Schlesinger, who was the third writing partner. But more so than that, I mean, he took many songs and just wrote them himself, in addition to being the main music producer of the series. So 
definitely generating material was a concern. And then just not redoing stuff we'd already done with the songs. Yeah. Writing two original songs for an episode for, we did, I think, 62 episodes. That's hard. And by the time season four came around, I was like, every time we were writing songs for episodes, I was like, I don't know what we're going to (laughs) do. This is really hard. Yeah. Extraordinary. How many songs did you say in total throughout the four seasons? 157. Amazing. I mean, I haven't seen all of them, but the ones I have seen have all been very good. I mean, really, really good. I'm very, very proud. But that was also three songwriters basically all coming together. Even when someone took a song, when Adam Jackeri, say, like, full on just wrote the song, we still then had notes and punch-ups and changes from the other, from us. And then plus Aline would have thoughts too. So really it was like four heads. And then the audio book is great because the musical chapter just works so well. How long did that take to put together? Well, I wrote the musical chapter. I mean, it took me a couple months to really perfect the lyrics of it. And then one of my longtime collaborators, Jerome, I kind of sang him through. Here's what I'm kind of thinking this should sound like when we actually made the musical. And I went, but feel free to take liberties. He musicalized everything. And then when I recorded it, it was produced by Jack. But you can hear it on the audiobook, but also... I wanted to make sure that anyone reading the chapter, if they didn't want to just read lyrics, could also listen along. So if you go to my website and you click a link, you can hear the musical chapter. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's great. It was fantastic. So you were already friends with Jack Dolgen, who you wrote with, right? Yeah. Did you already know Adam Schlesinger? No, I'd met him through Aline. Uh, Aline's husband was roommates with Adam when they were in their early 20s. And so I met Adam through Aline. And so for people listening who don't know, Adam was in the band Fountains of Wayne, who had a big hit with Stacy's Mom at the beginning of the 2000s. That's a great album. Welcome into State Managers. It's a fantastic album. And Stacy's Mom is almost kind of like an outlier on it. Yeah. There's a song called Super Collider on there that I love. Uh-huh. And this year, of course, has been hard for so many people for so many reasons. But I'm so sorry that it's been especially hard for you. You lost... Adam, he died of COVID in April, yeah. just a few weeks after your daughter was born. A week exactly, basically. Right. Yeah, it was it was incredibly rough. And there's an afterword in the book all about it. But some of my happiest memories with him were less than a year before that. We had been to London. We performed at the Palladium. And it was, I think, the most special shows I ever did performing at the Palladium. It was just, it was me, Adam. Jack was on his honeymoon, so we couldn't, but it was me, Adam, and then a couple of actors from the show also came, and it was just so fun. And I had so much fun being in London with Adam. So I I have really good, really lovely, like, associations Mm. with London now. But I'm so sorry that that happened. Thank you. He was clearly very well loved, you know. I saw a lot of tributes to him. And just so talented. I mean, really, he, he was a singular talent. Truly. Yeah. And the loss is still, um, it's so big for obviously his, everyone who knew him, but it, it's so big for everyone because I fully believe he was not even yet halfway through his career. Yeah, yeah. And halfway through all the things he was going to do. He had so, he was in his early 50s, but he had the energy of a 22 year old person. He was not slowing down at all. And then you had your baby as well. So you, I can't imagine what the grieving process must have been like just very surreal i suppose when you have a uh, a newborn baby to look after as well yeah i was scared i was scared i i called my psychiatrist basically the second i found out adam died to be like what do i do Mm -hmm. it was very scary that was the hardest 
two, three weeks of my life. Because also my daughter was born and she was in the, the NICU because she had fluid in her lungs and it was during COVID. It was just as COVID was starting. This is late March when no one knows what's happening. We don't know how it spreads. So we get home from the hospital. She's still in the hospital. My husband can't go back into the hospital, period, to see her because of COVID. And we're just scrubbing down everything that was in the hospital with us because we don't know what has COVID on it Mm -hmm. and how COVID spreads. We just, we knew nothing. That was really, it was really hard. Yeah. I mean, that must have felt like apocalyptic. Yes, it it did. Parts of this year have felt apocalyptic for many of us, you know, especially at the beginning of the whole thing where it was, it was all so unknown, where the prospect of a vaccine was absolutely distant. Oh my God. Yeah. It was really frightening. And then to, to be in that position, to have a young child, your first child, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's an overwhelming thing anyway. Yeah, I'm still processing it, to be honest. It's, I mean, talking about it a lot in interviews is probably helping me process it. Yeah, I hope you don't mind me asking about it. No, not at all, not at all. It, it does help me process it in a way. Like, it was so hard, but it. I also felt so connected to the past. Because as I was, like, on my hands and knees... My friend was in at that point in the hospital. My daughter was in the NICU. The NICU is the natal... It's the in- neonatal intensive care unit. Yeah. So it's the ICU for babies. Yes. And I was on my hands and knees outside, scrubbing down my wallet with a Clorox wipe. Mm-hmm. While I was still actively bleeding from childbirth, I felt like I was like... It was like 1805, and I was like in a small village in the Ukraine. <laughs> like, yes, this is most of human history. It's like... You give birth and then you get on your knees and you scrub because death is all around you. Yes, exactly. Only recently have I been aware of people starting to talk about death a lot more in all sorts of ways and to actually begin to try and bring it more into the mainstream of culture and discussion and to have it be something that we are all wise to start thinking about and preparing ourselves for one way or another not all the time because then you forget to enjoy life no i agree i didn't think about death much at all i'd only experienced really the deaths of my grandparents yeah i mean i I was only really really conscious for the deaths of two of the four and they were old and they'd both been in decline Mm -hmm. and i was in college so i hadn't been seeing them as much i didn't think about death in that way Mm. This was the first time I've unexpectedly lost someone. And then in that converging with bringing new life into the world, but having that new life be so tenuous because she was in... I mean, you walk into this NICU and, you know, my baby's... She has an IV in her. She has a nasal calendula thing. Mm -hmm. Although she was so strong and stubborn, she kept ripping out her nasal calendula. She was like, no, I'm dead. There are other babies in there who have, like, jaundice. They're born, you know, with, like, kind of yellow skin. And so they're under, like, a tanning lamp. So they have these huge goggles on, and then they're under a sun lamp. It's, it, yeah, it was very intense. I hope she's okay now. She's great now. She is fat, happy, strong. She's so, so, so strong. Do you have kids? I do. Yeah, three. Oh, oh, my God. Oh, Loads. Three. That's a load of kids. Yeah, just give me a shout. She's doing the thing. She's crawling. I will. She's great. She's fine. She had a thing called TTN, which is transient something. It's it's a thing that's very common. And in fact, I read a statistic that something like 
15% of all babies born end up in the neonatal intensive care unit because if your baby has any problem, they go there, there's like the NICU and then there's not the NICU. There's no middle step. Mm -hmm. So if your baby has any problem, that's where they go. And so because it was it transient was in the name, that was one of the things I clung to. Yeah. And now that she is okay, what are the things that you're thinking about doing with her? What are your... What's your fantasy list of things you're going to do with your daughter when she's a bit older? Like you talk about going to Disneyland, for example, and your love of theme parks when you were growing up. I share that enthusiasm because we were lucky enough as a family to go to America quite a bit when we were growing up. My dad was a travel writer. Oh, cool. And he took us to uh, Disneyland a few times in Florida and California, Disney World and Disneyland. And for me, it was completely magical and me and my sister were obsessed with it and it was funny reading your thing about amusement parks and adult amusement parks as well your ideas as well in the (laughs) book um well any sort of expectation that i had for what's she going to be like and what are we going to do when she's older has been completely superseded by i'm just so excited to go to a mommy me and me me class and have her meet other babies. Mm -hmm. I'm excited to walk her down the street and say hello to strangers and not be terrified that they're going to kill us. You know, I have very, very low expectations for what I want to do with her because there have been so many things about this year that aren't normal. She hasn't been held by any of her grandparents yet. Right. So, like, I haven't really thought about stuff we're going to do in the future because I'm just focused on the near future of, okay... I'm excited for when we get vaccinated, whenever that is, and when the people we know who are vaccinated, because I don't know who is going to get vaccinated. I I don't know. So I don't know how long it'll be before I can go on a plane again. I don't know how, you know, when I'll trust being in public again. But okay, when I can actually be around people I love who I know are also vaccinated and we can like touch and hug and they can hold her and she can be around other kids. That's my goal. That's what I'm excited about. So you're not thinking about the Jungle Cruise just yet? Well, I'm always thinking about the Jungle Cruise in some way. It's always in the back of my mind. (laughs) Wait, this is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area and spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com slash Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code Buxton to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. The dog was lost in the fog. Hey, welcome back, podcats. 
That was Rachel Bloom talking to me there. Very grateful to Rachel for making the time. And if you're new to her stuff and intrigued to know more, then there are lots of links in the description of this podcast that you may enjoy. Also in the links today are a couple of links related to the Mesothelioma UK charity. And that is related to my dad. I wrote about the fact that my dad was diagnosed with mesothelioma, cancer of the lining of the lung. And I was contacted by someone in the Mesothelioma UK charity who asked if I would talk to one of their members about my dad and about caring for him as part of a series of sort of video podcasts they've been doing. Talking to people about the condition, which is quite rare and is related to asbestos inhalation. And so they are keen on raising awareness about the dangers of asbestos. I told them that I don't know very much about the condition, despite my dad having had it. Because he wasn't really being treated, there wasn't a lot of discussion about it. Anyway, they said, don't worry. So if you'd like to see my conversation about looking after my dad, you'll find a link in the description of the podcast. Thanks very much if you were one of the people who turned out for the Idler drinks online last Thursday. That was good fun. I debuted a new song on there, did some live Zoom singing. I really want to try and get better at Zoom and do a few live streaming appearances that are a bit more ambitious than the ones I've done so far. Although I'm a little bit sad because my favourite live stream hat, a green sort of peaked cap, has now disintegrated. I put it in the wash because it was getting a bit gnarly. And when it came out, it was in different sections. And it is beyond repair. It's quite old. I found it when I was on holiday in France a couple of years back. And it served me very well. We had some great times together for the last couple of years. As my cowardly hair has begun to recede, it's been nice to be able to... um, pop the old cap on and it's not just because of that because you shouldn't be ashamed of your cowardly hair I wouldn't encourage that nothing wrong with it but I just like I've always been a hat wearer anyway so feeling a bit sad about the end of green cap but uh, who knows maybe the universe will gift me another bit of great headwear it's just the cold I'm not going to start crying don't worry Okay. Rosie! Rosie! Come on, let's head back. It's cold. Come on, dog. Come on, Rosie. Oh, yeah. Now she's cruising. It's going to be a fly past. Allegedly fly past from the hairy bullet. Thanks very much indeed to Seamus Murphy Mitchell for his support in the production department. Thanks to Matt Lamont for conversation editing on this episode. Much appreciated both. Thanks to Acast for their continued support. Thanks very much indeed to you, Podcats, for sticking with the podcast, being nice about it. I really appreciate it. Quick virtual hug? Come on, then. Yeah. Christmas is coming. Weird socially distanced Christmas. Anyway, me and Cornballs will be hanging out with you on the big day. And next week, 
I think on the 11th of December, a guest that you will all know. Someone that it was quite nerve-wracking and exciting to talk to. Yeah, yeah, you think you know who it is, don't you? Well, maybe you do. But maybe you don't. So keep a lookout. Till then, take care. I hope you're doing all right. And, uh, you know, for what it's worth, I do love you. Bye!